Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. As ever, welcome to Brooklyn's fantastic to see so many of you tonight, and thank you for, as ever, supporting the Trust. Um, a special welcome to our guests and new members. If you're first time here, you're very welcome. Um, we hope to see you again very soon. I'd like to also offer a special welcome to our new commercial operating officer who's here for the first time. She's been in the job four days and she's still here. <laughs> Would you welcome Amanda Squires, please? Now, when I started running these events five years ago, um, I used to say to Alan, do you think we'll get this many people through? And used to worry if we got 10 people. Tonight is a good example. I now worry that I can get all of you in here. It's a kind of a nice problem to have, so uh, thank you. Now, what I want you to do tonight is to imagine that it's just you in a bar, sitting next to a table where three gentlemen who should probably know better um, are going to discuss the land speed record and its history here at Brooklands. Forget the fact there are other 239 people listening as well. Our first guest to be part of this discussion is one of the Campbell family dynasty. Malcolm Campbell's grandson and land speed record holder in his own right. Will you please welcome Don Wales. He sat in the right place as well, so we're doing well. I'm up first, I sit in the yeah. middle. <laughs> so next to welcome a man that is no surprise that he's here. I believe he's driven the Napier route more than John Cobb did, but he'll probably correct me as he does on most things. Will you please welcome our former director and CEO and now VP of the Brooklyn's Trust, Alan Wynne. Now, <laughs> oh, as we're in the bar, finally the man who's going to buy the first round. And keep everyone in order. Our great friend, editor-in-chief of Autocar magazine, Steve Cropley. Well, good evening, everybody. Um, thank you very much for coming to this uh, this event tonight. It's, uh, it's fantastic, as, as uh, Steve has already said, to see so many of you. I think, uh, I guess you're aware of it, but, but the fact that you come to these things and pack the place out, not only does the, uh, the organisation so much good, but it also makes it easier for us to improve the quality of the speakers. They want to come and talk to you because there are so many of you. You can see some quality here, of course. Tonight is the exception. <laughs> Uh, when we decided to do this, um, it was because, uh, really, it was, it was a consciousness of, of Brooklyn's um, role in early land speed record um, setting. You'll, you'll be aware that uh, in the very early motoring age, um, the land speed record setting was owned by the French and the Germans largely. And it was when it was after Hugh Lock King invested in this place and brought the British motor industry and motor racing on so quickly that that the British came to 
play such an important role in it and eventually dominate it. And domination, the domination is what we're going to hear about. These, we've organized these gentlemen to represent two of the, the proper speed kings. Alan is going to talk a lot about Cobb, plus others. Um, and Don is obviously going to talk about the, his, his, his family, plus others. Um, but it's, uh, uh, it's, the, it's the role of Brooklands that we want to uh, feature. The, um, Alan, as Steve said, has probably occupied the seat of the Napier Railton more than Cobb did himself. You'll tell us in a minute. Um, Don is a, a, a land speed record holder. It's amazing. Fancy that. You can tell us about that. Yeah, I know you. <laughs> hold the modesty, mate. Yeah. Oh, I bet. Um, and we have a third expert tonight. He's not going to get credited, or he doesn't want to be credited, but in fact, the bloke that has done an enormous amount of the picture research that you're going to see is Tim Morris, hiding over here. But he's responsible for... And so we're just going to sort of rattle through this according to a, a script I have. And uh, script is a bit of a bit of a uh, over over exaggeration. But we're going to start. I've not seen a script. Well, you, you, there's a piece of paper. There. <laughs> That's my crib sheet. <laughs> but we're going to start in the really in the pre-Brooklands or sort of running up to Brooklands era, aren't we? We're going to talk about the people who who started it before either of the gentlemen that you're representing tonight. Yeah, um, obviously, as you, uh, as you said, the, um, uh, the initial land speed records, um, yeah, not really, nobody sat down and said, let's have a land speed record, um, but uh, people started going fast and saying, has anybody gone faster than that? And uh, a lot of it is down to people like um, Janazzi with, uh, with his uh, electric bullied, which uh, hit a massive 40 miles an hour or something and, uh, and uh, held the land speed record as a, re as a result. And then he streamlined it and went even faster. Uh, but all that stuff was being done on uh, public roads. In fact, it, uh, the French kept allowing the land speed record to be set on public roads uh, right up until the mid 20s, when um, uh, 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 when Thomas and uh, Eldridge were fighting it out on the road at Apoyon, uh just down the road from Marlary. I was reading in Don's book, which uh, he has here. Look at that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I prepared earlier. I've I have read this tome. It's worth it's worth buying. But the, one of the Very facts quickly. that I teased out was the, was that the land speed record went in two years from 40 miles an hour to 75 miles an hour. But apparently, uh, so they got on with it, didn't they? I yeah. mean, it was it was even well before World War One. It was considerable speed. Oh yeah, it was electric cars to start with, yeah. which I obviously got in, involved with later on as well. But um, initially, the electric car got it going, and then steam car and then the invention of the uh, starter motor and, and petrol engine really gave it a kick up the backside for it to go faster. But the, the land speed record is going to be 120 years old um, this year in December, December the 18th, in two months' time. Is, so, that, is that set according to the rules we now understand? Because the rules yeah. changed, didn't they? They did change. The, initially it was over uh, one, one direction and you could do it in almost down a hill and you could do it with the following wind. Um, but so you waited for the wind to blow? And Absolutely, yeah. Um, put a sail up. But I think the, the first records that were two-way were, were here. 
Yeah. Is that not right? Yeah. One, of the, one of the complications in this whole land speed record story is this thing about one-way, two-way, uh, following when drivers cap on backwards, all that sort of thing. Um, because You've been doing a lot of that, though. <laughs> yeah, you've seen you do. Because <laughs> the, the, the official land speed record actually went down. Um, yeah, the, number, the numbers came down uh, in the period immediately before the First World War when this, when this changeover uh, happened, uh, where people in the States doing this one-way stuff, you know, uh, I think it was Oldfield managed to get one of the Blitz and Benzes up to about 140-something miles an hour, which was never accepted as a, as a record because it was... He didn't only, go the other way. There was only one direction and the Americans <coughs> didn't know how to make timing equipment. So that thing... <laughs> didn't want to. <laughs> so that, that's not changed at all, is it? <laughs> but that thing about a measured distance, an hour to turn around and so on. When, when is that, the 120 years? No, no. The, the, initially it was um, one way, so you didn't have to turn around, obviously. Um, the, it was just after the First World War, wasn't it? I mean, the rules changed that it had to be done within an hour. Yeah. Um, and, and the, the two-way average. And then various other little bits and pieces were introduced, like, for instance, the car had to have four wheels, um, and that, uh, that, that yeah. led to the, the, the big kerfuffle um, uh, with the various American um, uh, Lockheed Starfighters without wings um, in the 60s, where the yeah. uh, yeah, three-wheelers and so forth. Which is what my uncle was up against. Was, uh, but, but also yeah. the, uh, the, the problem uh, with... Uh, trying to make them as real cars. So, for instance, there was this huge kerfuffle when Eldridge and uh, Toma were fighting out uh, again at Apio in 1924 because Eldridge's car didn't have a, a reverse gear. Reverse gear. Yeah. Oh, yes, uh, indeed. Um, Mephistopheles, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so all that sort of thing. Uh, it's been refined over the years. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the principle of there being a record against which people could, uh, could set the targets would be 120 years. So yeah. let, let's discuss who the, who the big men were pre-Campbell. Campbell is the first of these, isn't he, the, the first of, the, of these big men we're discussing too. Yeah. But, but who were, who were, the, who were the, the big guys that, that, that Campbell exceeded? Who, the, well, Campbell uh, succeeded, yeah. Um, well, Lee Guinness. Lee Guinness was one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Paddy but, Thomas, who came on, along a little bit later. But, but before before that, um, the uh, I guess yeah, the the guys who put the biggest stamp on the on the land speed record were probably um, the Benz Company with the creation of the monstrous um, uh, so-called Blitz and Benz. Um, uh, but even before you got to that, uh, because there's a very uh, interesting set of pictures just coming up. Um, uh, 1906, uh, Fred Marriott had the uh, land speed record with this amazingly flimsy Stanley steamer. Yeah. Um, it literally was, you know, it looks like an upturned canoe. And when you see photos of the crash uh, that finished its, uh, its um, career, it was just an upturned canoe on top of a, uh, a phenomenal, uh, of a kettle. Phenomenal um, speed. Of it. But it, it, it was doing over 120 miles an hour. And one of, one of the interesting things was that that, that got the record in, uh, in 1906, and I think it set it first at about 121 miles an hour, yeah. and its last, its last gasp was 127 miles an hour. And that was doing that when Colonel Holden was designing this track here. And 
the the measure of the the speed with which things were advancing in the motor industry at that stage was that Holden designed the slowest corner on the circuit here, uh, the members banking, the bit inside the uh, museum grounds, uh, for a hands-off speed at the top of 120 miles an hour, which was a bit over a mile an hour slower than the outright absolute land speed record of the time the in time. 1906 yeah, yeah. when that design was being That's done. It's ambition, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so he was assuming that the people were going to be lapping here faster than the then yeah. land speed record. Wow. Um, how did, just to, to complete the story, how did Fred get on when he crashed at 127? Uh, he stepped out okay. faster. Yeah, he, he actually crashed the following year and they estimated he was doing 140. And he was okay? Well, he was okay apart from um, an eyeball being detached. <laughs> and uh, and a, a doctor on the scene yeah, actually yeah. picked the eyeball up and put it back in. With a teaspoon. Yeah, yeah. With, a, with a teaspoon. Uh, as everybody walks around with a teaspoon, obviously. It's a oh, pop word. eyeball. Yeah. And he was fine. Yeah. Okay, so, so, so that's Marriott. I've got Hemery here. Who's yeah. Now, uh, Victor Hemery was a journeyman driver, one of the first sort of, um, you know, um, uh, pay me some money and I'll drive your motor car. Uh, type guys, and he um, he came uh, here uh, with one of the uh, the monstrous, uh, the so-called 200 horsepower uh, Benz, as the 21 and a half litre four-cylinder uh, monster, um, and set the land speed record in 1909. Uh, he also set some other records here. This is one of the few pictures of him. Um, uh, Her Majesty's motoring press were not very good at taking pictures of people breaking records in the early days. We have very few pictures of uh, either uh, Henry uh, and indeed Hornstead with their, with their big Benzes. Probably didn't stand still here. long enough. Yeah. But yeah. also, but, um, I might be wrong on this. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but... Um, he broke the record, Henry broke the record in 1906 as well, yeah. in a Darek. Yeah. Now, I know someone in the audience might correct me on this, but he built, bought, um, broke the record in 1906, and then my grandfather bought that car from him. Yeah. Um, it, it had won the Vanderbilt Trophy as well at, uh, in America. Wow. And my grandfather bought that car in 1909, I believe, and then that's the car that he christened Bluebird, yeah. I believe. So, and, uh, okay, so that, that was the first Bluebird. Yeah, was that a ahead. racing car or a land speed record car, or was it? No, it was to be a racing car, but I'm sure I've jumped ahead there. But I've just whilst we were but talking. But I think about um, that that was the, uh, was a the, the reincarnation of that car. Of course, was at uh, Goodwood uh, this year. They said to be. Was that, it? Oh, I didn't know yeah, that. Yes, yeah, uh, no, because it was restored, uh, re recreated oh. in New Zealand using the original. Um, uh, Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know that. But I'm. I'm no, but but anyway, just Sorry. just just while we've got this picture up here, this is this is a fascinating picture because it's Hemery, not with the Benz, but with the 15-litre Lorraine, Lorraine Dietrich via uh, Charles, mm -hmm. which of course is in the uh, museum here. And that car came here and broke these records in 1912, uh, even though it had been a complete failure in the French Grand Prix that year. All four of them failed. Um, but the car was brought here, set a whole lot of records, and then. Um, a, a certain captain uh, brought it back here in 1920, and it won the first uh, uh, the first post First World War race here. It uh, is the wonder of this place, isn't it? Yeah, that, uh, yeah. so, and uh, that car lives here currently under restoration. Yeah. Staggering. So yeah, but anyway, th those were the, and that of course is effectively a Blitzen Benz. That's a that's based on the RD Benz, which is the 15-litre car, and then there was the 22-litre uh, the car, this one here. Isn't that um, fabulous? 
the amazing thing about that is, of course, it's on artillery wheels. I mean, can you imagine going, yeah. going racing on <laughs> artillery yeah. wheels? Just before, we, we, before I lose the thought, because it's a thing that happens to me, um, <laughs> just to give us the Bluebird. Where, give us the story of Bluebird. Where does this, where does this name Bluebird come from? Um, well, it... it uh, obviously, grandfather used to used to race here. I mean, he, he first came here, uh, I think, um, about 1907, 1908, and, and was racing motorcycles to start. So a young guy. Oh yes, yeah. He he was he, he was he was driven. I mean, he, he really was attracted to um, all things speed. Um, I mean, there's a, all sorts of stories. I can come on to the Bluebird one. I can go on to uh, the first one where he he was um, trying to find out at a very young age of how fast a push bike. Could go, and he's pedalling down a hill in in Kent, Bickley Hill, at the age of about 10 or 11, pedalling like mad, trying to find out how fast this, this push bike could go, and he's gone across the crossroads and, and nearly knocked over two old ladies, and there's a policeman on the other side of the road who, who notices and arrests him, so he's in in court the next day in front of the magistrate, and the the magistrate takes a very dim view of this uh, incident with this unruly youth. Um, Speed-crazed youth. Yeah, and uh, he, my grandfather is charged with riding a bicycle, endangering life and limb on the public highway uh, of 30 miles an hour or something stupid, whatever it was they, they estimated his speed at. Uh, and I can see the, the judge putting the black cap on as he's passing sentence. <laughs> and, and he says, um, Malcolm Campbell, you, you stand before me charged with endangering life and limb on the public highway. Uh, I'm going to fine you 30 shillings and I want that to be a lesson to you and I never want to hear the name Malcolm Campbell associated with such speed ever again. <laughs> true, true story. What a story. But also, but also later on, in the same court, same day, uh, the next defendant was charged with uh, wife battery, beating, beating up his, his wife. He was found guilty and fined five shillings. <laughs> I don't advocate any of that, but no, only no. five shillings beating your wife up. Times change. Yeah. So, I mean, but he was just always driven to speed. Uh, and the first time was with his um, push bike, and then his first trophy was on a, on a motorbike, a little gold coin medallion medal for uh, an endurance race from London to Land's End. And then he won it three years running just to shut his friends up to say it wasn't a fluke. <laughs> Do you want to just give us a quick burst of Bluebird? Quick burst. Um, yes, he, he, uh, I'm sure a lot of people know the story, but um, there's, there's an awful lot of fact and fantasy about my grandfather. Um, uh, and I'm not quite sure how we, we try and prize out what is fact, what is fantasy, what is pure self-promotion. Because um, he was big on self-promotion. He was indeed, yeah, um, very, very much so. He, he, he liked he liked himself a lot. Um, <laughs> but with, with the story that I like, which I think I've probably embellished a little bit as well, because I like to tell a good story. Um, that the, the two versions of this story are that he, he was racing a car here at Brooklands, not giving him the success that he wanted. It called Flapper One, Flapper Two, and he was about to christen the car Flapper Three. And uh, one version of the story is that, is that a friend told him about this play called The Bluebird of Happiness, which was on um, uh, the Haymarket Theatre up in London. And uh, my grandfather thought, oh, well, I'll um, call my car Bluebird. That's one version. The other version is that he was actually in London 
watching this play. And it's a fairy story about children looking for the elusive bird of happiness, which is just out of your grasp. Um, and uh, he thought, well, this is a great story. It's all about trying to improve yourself. Um, and uh, he just thought, this was a, it's a great story. I'll call my car Bluebird. And he drove home, woke up the local ironmonger, and bought every tin of blue paint and painted the car blue himself, which that bit is obviously true, is whether he went to the Haymarket Theatre and actually saw it or not. And I think my uncle has embellished the story that it, he actually went to see it. That's um, Donald. Yeah, that's Donald, yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so he then drove the car here with the paint still wet, <laughs> lots of paint still on him, and there's a fabulous painting that Jack Vetriano did um, as part of the Bluebird series. Um, and he christened it Blue Bird. It was two words right, in I those days. Yeah. Um, and... And, and won the first race with that car. And so everything was Bluebird from there on in. Let's do... There's more, pause. There's more. Yep. yep, I know. I'm just fascinated with this bloke's name, LG Cupid Hornstead. Was his name really Cupid? I, it's uh, in inverted commas, uh, the, the Cupid. <laughs> okay, right. And I, I can't remember uh, how he became christened that, but uh, okay. another, another story. But that is he. Yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, and uh, he, he got the, the, the record in 1914. This is the uh, artillery wheels, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's a bit um, and I'm sure he didn't race it with the... Surely he didn't use those heavy mud and snow uh, <laughs> tyres. But, um, yeah, um, they, these were amazing vehicles and because uh, you could just gear them up and gear them up and uh, they had the power to do it. And, uh, they, and of course, these cars lived on. Their torque, wasn't it? it was yeah, yeah. afterwards, because uh, um, uh, Zabrowski had one of these cars um, post-war uh, and indeed uh, his car was dismantled and the gearbox out of it went into Babs, which we oh, will come on to right. uh, later on. So they, they had a great deal of uh, life and there's two of them now running. Um, again, the factory has one and uh, uh, the Bell Evans one has just gone to Hermann Leyer in Germany. So there are now two Blitz and Benzes running, which are fabulous things. The next name that I have here has the, the um, initials KLG. Yeah. Ken Elm Lee Guinness. Tell me about him, somebody. Uh, Guinness family. KLG uh, being a spark plug. Spark plugs. Yeah, K yeah. yeah there, there was Ken Elm and there was Algie uh, Lee Guinness, uh, Guinness as well. Um, you know, uh, and, and it was Algie who had the V8 uh, Darak uh, for a while, the car that Mark Walker now has, uh, the, uh, the 1902 1903 land speed car. Is, is this. Um, uh, and they, they are part of the Guinness dynasty. Right, so I was going to say Guinness means... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just to some people, but, um, or spark plugs to others. <laughs> but, but K. Lee Guinness, as he always uh, styled himself, right. um, yeah, got hold of the, uh, the wonderful 350 horsepower uh, Sunbeam, which is going to feature uh, later in this uh, story. Was he, was he a, a works driver for... For Sunbeam. Or was he, did he just manage to get, to get his hands? I, I he didn't own it, did he? he no, he, but uh, uh, it's a case of um, uh, Louis Cotel and the, uh, the Sunbeam designer, uh, uh, designer well, well, no. works director. Yeah. Um, yes, uh, rated uh, Guinness. And um, yeah, the, yeah. He, he got to... So I know my grandfather had problems after that, trying to get hold of it. Yeah. How yeah. did life go on for these blokes? I mean, did they, did they all come out every Saturday afternoon and have a big face-off, or did, did, were, 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 did things happen separately? Uh, no, no, re record-breaking here was quite interesting, because um, yeah, records were set as, as record attempts. Uh, so um, you, didn't, you didn't get 
a lap record or the land speed record uh, in the middle of a race or whatever. Um, uh, and uh, the record breaking here tended to happen uh, towards the end of every season. Um, uh, October was a good time for breaking records when the when the motor racing calendar was getting a bit thinner, and they would have sort of record breaking sessions at, at the end of the season. They were, they were done at other times as well, but the, the vast, uh, 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 a big percentage of the records. A bit like Bonneville. Yeah, yeah. Almost a sort of speed week. Yeah, yeah. Where people would bring out stuff they knew they were going to have to rebuild for the winter, uh, over the winter, so they might as well uh, drive it balls. Blow it up, at, yeah. At, uh, at the end. But, yeah, but this car, the, the important thing about the this car and the land speed record that it set here was that this was the last time that the record was set on a closed circuit. Um, and even though Brooklyn's was a very fast track, at the time it was the fastest uh, track in the world, but um, it wasn't fast enough. The, the, the space just wasn't great enough because the railway straight um, is less than a mile long. Um, and uh, if you're timing even over a flying kilometre and you've got a corner at each end, clearly yeah. you're, you are not able to develop the sort of speeds. And, uh, and, the, and the thing is, of course, that the car here uh, got, a, got a, a world land speed record of about 122 mile an hour. Um, by the time Campbell got it onto the, onto the sand at Pendine, he was able to get up uh, to 150. So the next... The basic car. Right. The next name that I've got here is associated forever with Pen Pendine, which is the transition you're talking about from circuit to... So Pen Pendine was the was the, the, the sort of go-to place for all of them, was it, at that? At uh, yeah, uh, uh, yes, in, in the UK. It's, it's, the, yeah. best, it's the best it's beach in the UK for that, yeah. that sort of thing, because you could get about six or seven miles. Six or seven miles of straight sand, yeah. but... Um, usable probably up to five. Yeah. So Parry Thomas, big name, he was, he's, yeah. you know, I'm not an expert, but I've heard of Parry Thomas. He yeah. died at Pendine, didn't he? Yeah. But he did a lot of good stuff before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Parry Thomas and, was... And he's central, he's central to this history. He is, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very, because, very important. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, people probably know the story. He was chief engineer at Leyland Motors, um, uh, designed the eccentric but wondrous Leyland, Leyland 8, eight. Yeah. Uh, of which they made a whole a production run of 18. Um, and uh, <laughs> and the, the factory actually gave him one or two of those cars, which uh, uh, eventually developed into the Leyland Thomas, which was a successful racing car here. He came here, he set himself up, Thomas Inventions Limited, which was later after his death. But he also lived here, didn't he? Yeah, oh yeah, he lived in the, the in the Hermitage, in, yeah, inside yeah, the track. Yeah, he lived on yeah, the um, yeah. Really uh, living above so the he, shop. So he really lived yeah. the job, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. 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 Um, again, uh, an odd character. Um, uh, brusque exterior, uh, sarcastic, loud, boisterous and everything else. And this is a guy who funded a cot uh, at um, uh, Great Ormond, Ormond Street. Street. Yeah. Um, yeah. He has totally different sides to his character, but he had a, had a real reputation for, um, uh, he was probably the archetypal martinet. But um, he um, got into land speed record stuff through um, uh, buying uh, the last car that Zabrowski had uh, commissioned. Uh, uh, Louis Zabrowski had yep. started off the uh, the mega airship uh, brigade here with Chitty Bang Bang 1 and 2 and 3 and then the last car that Clive Gallup built for him uh, was the so-called Higham or Higham uh, depending on how you pronounce your Kentish place names um, <laughs> uh, special. Um, the people who bought it from him called it Higham um, the house. Um, but the Higham special was a really crude 
uh, frame with a 400 horsepower Liberty uh, World War One V12 aircraft engine in it, the biggest ever, biggest engined car ever to race here uh, at 27 litres, and that became uh, went through a whole series of modifications uh, as Babs uh, he kept on. Uh, streamlining it, but uh, you know, it, was, uh, it was one of these things. I, the thing, if you look at it now, it is a really crude old dog. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, it is. And, and Thomas, it's, 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 Thomas saw his his window of opportunity. He was using a bigger engine than other people were, and with the land speed record being where it was, sort of hovering around the 150, 155 mile an hour mark, you know, with a 350 horsepower uh, Sunbeam. If you've got a more powerful uh, engine, you should be able to go faster bigger with the faster. same basic yeah. technology. Right. And so he was he was then heading around the 170 miles an hour uh, bracket, and he. He got the land speed record on Pendine, and 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 it's interesting. Um, uh, Don and I both had the uh, privilege. Uh, three oh years, yes, th three years ago was it? Uh, Twenty fifteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three years ago. Yeah, We were uh, we were on the sand at Pendine, uh, ninety years to the day since uh, his grandfather uh, first to do. Yeah, celebrating one hundred and fifty mile an hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First to do one hundred. Um, There's a great picture in here of Don on that on that day. Driving on Pendine Sand. Driving the Sunbeam. That was a great day. It was a great day. Yeah. The pictures on the front here are of the two cars being exercised. We took the Railton down there as well that day, and the two cars being exercised on the sand. And you, when you're on there, it's a much better place than on a closed circuit, and it's much better than a straight gravel road in France, um, because it's a bit wider and all that sort of thing. But you feel the drag. It's not an ideal place. No, it's not. So the rolling yeah. resistance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. The, so the, the Railton normally needs four people to push start it. It really needed six on the sand. Really? And you could feel the sand tugging, especially with the sunbeam. You could actually feel the sand tugging at the, uh, yep. uh, at the steering of the, mm -hmm. of the car while you're... I was there myself, and, and Don was there dressed not un or very similarly to, to his grandfather. And, and the photographs, as you'll see, are, are remarkable because it, there, is a, there is a family resemblance, and there was certainly a, 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 a resemblance in apparel, wasn't there? And yeah, 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 yeah. It was a surreal yeah, moment. The rest of us wouldn't have the nerve to wear a pale blue sweater. <laughs> but, uh, uh, well, my grandfather was a good-looking bloke, though, wasn't he? He, really? he was. <laughs> Can I? Okay, so let, let's. We've got a bit of video coming up, but let me let me just ask where where was Campbell? So Parry Thomas gets the record. Yep. Things go wrong for him. He dies. The car gets buried, right? On yep. Pendine. Yeah. Yeah. And exhumed later. Yeah. By. Uh, Where's Campbell during these this um, time? He, well, he had the Sunbeam, we've already discussed, and he got as much out of the Sunbeam as he possibly could, uh, and he then decided that he needed to build his, his own purpose land speed car, um, and uh, started to get that done. He, he was aiming for 180 miles an hour with that, um, and the car was uh, basically designed and then built um, in, um, I forget where it was built now. Um, uh, anyway, it, it, it was finished off at Povey Cross in his, yeah. in his house. But, but the, thing wa the thing was that Thomas grabbed that moment because right. the first, yeah, he knew, Campbell's yeah. first 
purpose-built land-speed record car took far too long to build. Yes, and so yeah. there was this window of opportunity where uh, uh, Thomas knew that uh, you know, the, the writing was on the wall because Babs, you know, no matter how many uh, streamlined fairings you put on the front axle, it was not ever going to be a 200-mile-an-hour motor car. Perry Thomas was there. Yeah. He was at Pendine. Um, he actually helped push the, the car out of the sand. Yeah. Um, Did he? Yeah, he was down at Pendine with my grandfather. I think yeah. the story is that he was in the sand dunes with a pair of binoculars. Um, <laughs> but because uh, the, the sand was so soft and conditions were so bad um, that the car started to sink and they had to get it onto metal plates. So, and Perry Thomas was one of the people to help push it onto the, onto wow. the plates. Because they were, they were, they were um, rivals and competitors, but the, I think there was a healthy respect between the two of them. And, um, and, also different and, and genuinely, th those two did race each other here. Yes, um, yeah. So uh, the uh, so Babs raced here? Uh, Babs raced here, yeah. yes. But, but Campbell and... Uh, and Thomas were racing each other and things, uh, you know, everything up to British Grand Prix level, because Thomas built uh, one and a half litre Grand Prix cars for the uh, uh, unsuccessful, uh, for the 26-27 for the Grand Prix. Campbell, of course, was racing Bugatti uh, in, the, in those early Grand Prix. So they, they were actually head-to-head -head competitors in racing as well as in the land speed records. Gotcha. So, Tim, what should we be doing? Should we, should we run this... Okay. We're, we're, we're going to go and buy another pint while you lot watch this. <laughs> so what, what we now have is, is some Malcolm Campbell video. This is where we get serious about Malcolm Campbell. We shouldn't let it pass, of course, that, of course, there's great movie tone footage of Malcolm Campbell because he was director of British Movie Tone. Absolutely. Oh, yes. really? Yes. <laughs> so this goes, goes to your point about how he was so... So good on self-promotion. very Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think one thing, sorry, look, just to go back a little bit, um, that we must really emphasise what a, a centre of attraction, what a centre of excellence Brooklyn's uh, became... Um, because it attracted all of these uh, people who wanted to go fast and all of the engineers or, or mechanics who wanted to be part of this new world of motoring. And the only place that they could um, come to was Brooklyn's. And Parry Thomas really was, I think, almost the, the galvanizing catalyst for this. Because when he set up uh, his own engineering business, he also got um, Thompson and Taylor involved. And without Thompson and Taylor, we wouldn't have had um, Reed Relton, who also helped design cars as well, which my that grandfather car, the, that, that Bluebird, I was going to say, is such an extraordinary looking car when you 
contrast it with the cars we've seen previously, which well, have... there's a, the last one. The, yeah, the one, the one that was in the, in, yeah. Well, how did that come to be? Who designed it? Where did you, you well, know? Well, I mean, the, 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 my grandfather's Bluebird. It, it evolved and, and changed over the years of its of its history. The, um, the, the first one that was built. Um, in 1927 to 1928, then evolved over the years into the monster that went on to, to Bonneville in 1935. So it's the same car? It's the same car, stretched and changed. It's a bit like Trigger's Broom, I think. It, it sort of ended up with being... It's, it's, the, it's the same frame rails. Yes. And, that's um, and I think the steering gear uh, lasted most of its, uh, most yeah, of its life. Yeah, I think that's about right. But, but everything it, else was... And it's, it started off with a Napier Lion engine, which was the go-to engine. Yeah. Um, it was saddled with a... Uh, fairly unfortunate gearbox designed uh, yes. by Mr. Maina, which was going to do wonderful things, but weighed about as much as a London bus and didn't actually change gear. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, and then it was refined, and this, this is where the first bit of glue that binds this whole story together yeah. comes in. You've got Par you've got Parry Thomas, but you've also got Reed Railton. And although the original Bluebird was designed, the, the main design was done by Amherst Villiers of Villiers Supercharged four and a half litre Bentley, all that sort of uh, thing fame. Um, it was Reed Railton who was then the go-to man to try and get your land speed record car to work properly. And uh, he then uh, uh, got involved and gradually... Well, Railton was just, just an inspired engineer who... Who was in the in the Brooklyn's? Yeah, well, he, he yeah. came for he came to Thompson and Taylor. Well, after um, Parry Thomas was killed, um, the, the company rather than Thomas Engineering, it became Thompson, Thompson and Taylor. Ken, yeah. Ken Th Thomas and Ken Taylor, um, and then they employed Ree Relton to be their designer. And, and Relton was their their wonderful asset. Who yeah, absolutely. He yeah, was yeah. Their, he was their, he their was mad the, designer yeah. type yeah. person um, to, for everyone to come. Obviously, to. prolific. Producer of cars too. Oh yeah, yeah yes. all sorts of things. Yeah, because yeah. It, you know, before he came here, he'd done the Arab um, uh, sports car, and then uh, obviously he was he was involved in Thompson and Taylor with uh, the Riley Brooklands, turning the wonderful little Riley Nine uh, into a sports car. That was a, uh, that was started off by Perry Thomas, and then Reed Railton got involved in that. Reed Railton did the uh, chassis for the ERA. Um, he he did uh, obviously Cobb cars, yeah. uh, the, the... So he's, later as you on. say, the yeah, glue. Yeah, yeah, yes. What's happening? What, what, how do we, what, what's going on here? Um, well, that's grandfather. That's grandfather's first, first car. Um, he, uh, he left home quite early on, uh, after a bit of a row with his father, and ended up at a, uh, well, apartments, and convinced one of his neighbours that he needed to have a car. And um, you do. yeah, my grandfather, uh, he didn't have a car at the time and convinced this chap that he needed to um, buy a car and that my grandfather would teach him how to drive the car. And well, my grandfather hadn't driven a car at all. So he, he managed to sort of blag his way into that. And the mechanic who, he, who um, uh, helped my grandfather pick a car then taught my grandfather how to drive it with a five minute lesson. And my grandfather then drove it back to the, to the apartments and then taught the owner of the car. He sounds as a persuasive bloke. Do you find this runs in the family? Can you persuade people to do stuff? I wish I could. 
<laughs> it's, it's almost impossible. I try, I try. But, um, I mean, yes, he was, he was an incredibly driven man, and I'm sure we're going to touch on some of his personality traits and everything else later on. I mean, he, uh, he wanted to be the first person to, to uh, fly as well, and built, and built his picture own here. Yes, yeah, so that's, a, that's a picture from World War I, where he became a, a ferry pilot. Oh, and another. Yeah, yeah that's the one. He, he built that himself. Did he? Um, in a shed in um, Orpington somewhere. Uh, he had spent many hours and a lot of his own money building this, this plane, underpowered with a motorcycle engine. And he and some mates eventually decided that they were going to um, launch this thing. And the, the locals said, no, man isn't supposed to fly. This isn't, this isn't natural. And on this strawberry field, which was going to be his runway, they formed a cordon at the bottom. <laughs> And my grandfather thought, well, I'm determined enough to get this plane in the air. Um, these people will, will clear off out of the way. And the people at the end were quite determined as well, and they weren't going to get out of the way. So uh, as the two were coming head on, grandfather pulled back on the stick, and this thing sort of managed to sort of hop over them, belly, belly flopped into the, into the strawberry fields, there's strawberries and wings and propeller <laughs> flying everywhere. Um, and uh, grandfather then realised that this thing was underpowered, so they rebuilt it with a view of putting a bigger engine in it. Um, that still didn't work, so he thought, well, actually, I need to start again. I'll put it into an auction. Uh, and he put it into an auction, uh, hoping to get his money back. It cost him about £750 or something, and the auction <coughs> got stuck at £270. And he was at the back of the auction room and put up his hand and said, and 30. So at £300, he bought his own plane back. <laughs> 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 he put it into the auction the, the, the following week, uh, and uh, it sold for £25. <laughs> which, was, which was the commission um, for the previous previous sale, but so he gave up flying temporarily and then got back into back into racing. But that that was the start of a long and successful career as a cra as a crasher of aeroplanes. Yes, <laughs> yes. There's other other lots of stories of him, um, yeah, trying to find uh, a uh, a decent bit of sand in in Africa, and uh, he crashed the plane uh, once there, and then he was told about a. Um, do, do finding a, sand as a, as a place to run a land speed? Yeah, for, for the, yes. But that is at the time when um, he's obviously done, date, done uh, Pendine and he was um, thinking about Daytona, but Henry Seagrave was already going out to, to, uh, to Daytona. So he's another great name that came into Just coming into it, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he was told about this place in the Sahara Desert, but he, he crash-landed there and got captured by the, by the locals and managed to escape from them. Uh, then he was told about a, a stretch of sand down in um, South Africa, Vernak Pan, uh, and uh, um, if I remember rightly, he, uh, was in, he was a passenger in this plane that uh, crashed on takeoff. It flew into a tree. Um, and he was a passenger, but he badly cut his, his, his face and nose and um, was in a bit of a state. Uh, but they patched him up, put him into another plane, and that crashed on takeoff as well. <laughs> and what, so he ended what, up in hospital. <laughs> what was it, what, what held him up? I mean, it sounds as though he was somewhat hand to mouth. Um, uh, well, I mean, was that's, he, was yeah, it persuasive in. Well, he, 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 he inherited a little bit of money from, from the family because they were diamond merchants. Um, and th again, there's, there's, there's all sorts of stories about how and the family fortune was, was um, accumulated and what happened. One story, if I can be so bold, is that um, 
and I'm not sure which is fact and which is fiction again, is that I remember in Donald's, Uncle Donald's house, there was a sword uh, over the mantelpiece. And this sword apparently is a um, family heirloom. That apparently the story is that my grandfather tells is that uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie had five swords made by an Italian um, blacksmith, swordsmith called um, someone Ferrer, I've forgotten his Christian name now. Um, and these are famous blades that uh, uh, this chap came over from Italy. He was brought into um, Scotland to make lots of swords. But for the story to fit, Culloden was 1745, and this chap came over in, in the 1600s. So my grandfather says that this sword that was made by this blacksmith on commission of um, Bonnie Prince Charlie, given to one of our uh, well, one of his great-great-grandfathers, and this sword was then handed down to the, through the family lines. So that's my grandfather's story. But if you do the maths and work out, well, Ferreira wasn't alive when Bonnie Twins Charlie should have commissioned him. <laughs> However, if you look at another side of the story, is that um, Ferreira set up these blacksmiths um, with apprentices. Uh, so the sword could have been made to the same sort of, of um, yeah, by one of the apprentices. But is, then it, this is it still around, this sword? I'd like to ask my cousin that. <laughs> she's supposed to have it somewhere. This is Gina. But yes, yeah, it's Gina. But again, um, this, uh, that's one story. Another story is that um, we had a relative also who fought at Waterloo. My grandfather said it was one of his direct descendants. So it, it is a direct descendant, but slightly off, off kilter from the same family that fought at Culloden. And it's possible that their sword came from Waterloo. Another side of the story is that he just bought it from a junk shop. Um, <laughs> what's, what's going on here? There's a perfectly worthy-looking car which seems to have been... Well, this is, this is going back to the calling that Christian the car Bluebird. Okay. Uh, so the first car here is actually that car, um, the Derrick, on, on its way to Brooklands oh. with the riding mechanic to be christened Bluebird. But the second picture here is at a subsequent race when uh, he's in the lead and uh, the front wheel buckles. Oh, I see. And uh, there's a hell of an accident about to happen and my grandfather and the riding mechanic are crumpled on top of each other uh, and grandfather's trying to correct the steering uh, as the, the rear wheel buckles as well. And they're looking at death with the railings and trees and everything else of Brooklands. But luckily at the last minute it clips a curb and slews across the line in fourth place. Wow. Um, and ev everyone says, well, that's not so lucky anymore, is it? And he goes, well, actually, no, we should have been killed. Yeah. Um, and we weren't. This car is, is you know, the name Bluebird is, is, is now going to be for everything. Yeah. But more importantly about this picture is that almost as a direct result of that, I came into existence. Because, uh, because um, a certain um, uh, Dorothy Whittle was watching this, this race. And it happened right in front of her, this accident. And that, my grandfather then met her again eight years later and married her. And that was my grandmother. Well, so because of this accident, um, indirectly or directly. Yeah. Just picking up on the, uh, the Campbell family fortune, whatever, yeah. of course, um, while all this was going on, uh, he became an insurance underwriter. That's right. Yes. I mean, he. Well, he. He. he um, the family wanted him to go into into the uh, jewellery business, but he, he he fought against it, and um, went into insurance, and ended up uh, working at um, various places. But he 
was the first person to insure newspapers for libel. Yeah, he, he started a whole new uh, uh, business model, which was um, yeah, quite successful. Uh, li libel, libel insurance for hacks like him. <laughs> yeah. 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 And uh, awesome. it, interestingly, for, the, for those in the audience, especially the new chief operating officer, um, uh, he did that at Tizers, who are the museum's uh, insurance brokers. Well, well. Oh, the no, same. Oh, yeah. I didn't realise. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, that's great. Yes, because he was at Tizers. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is this a moment to be talking about, how are we, Tim, talking about Seagrave? No, not quite. Not quite? Okay. Oh, well, that's, 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 that's the, that's the, so yeah, that's the, um, that's the Napier, the Napier Lion engine. So that's the, the 1927 car. Yeah. That's so handsome. But I, well, I just love that. I mean, there's a picture later on, um, which I think is up on here somewhere. There we are, over there, where he's taking his hands off the uh, steering wheel to wipe the windshield because he can't see where he's going. Oh, yes, that's famous, isn't it? Yeah, at 180 odd miles an hour. Yeah. Um, all the, the, again, wet sand flying yeah. everywhere. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, whether or not he was a bounder in a cad, he was bloody brave. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> because yeah, yeah. Yeah, this sort of thing, you know, wrestling, these cars are not um, uh, your power-assisted uh, no. everything thing. These are very, very mechanical motor cars. And to be driving a car like that one-handed, trying to get the sand off your windscreen and goggles so you yeah, can see where the Yeah, leather flying hat, no yeah. seatbelt, yeah. Uh, yeah. goggles and just a steering wheel to hold on to. Yeah. How fast was that? Uh, the record was 174, um, give or take. Did he take the record? With he that? did, yeah. That, that's, yeah. That, that was the that was 174? Yeah, Amazing. on Pendine. But that was the last time, because then Parry Thomas was killed shortly afterwards trying to break that record. I see. Um, and that's when the Parry Thomas was out. It's a thing of beauty, isn't it? It, it is. Yeah, it's a shame that the, the car then evolved into what well, still was a lovely car, the 1935 Bluebird. Yeah. But it went, it went through a couple of really ugly phases in between, though, didn't it? It did, yes, because, uh, again, um, Malcolm was a, he was a privateer. He, he, he was self-financed um, and didn't have the, the money to start all over again. And I know when you went to um, Reed Relton to say, uh, well... Here's my car, it needs to go faster. And Reed Relton apparently said, Well, you need to start again. But my grandfather said, No, you, you, you've got this, you've got to make it work. Yeah. He'd already spent £20,000 or something on it at that stage, hadn't he? Oh, I don't know if, that, if it was that much. But it probably was. Yeah. I mean, I think. Um, was the inheritance gone? Well, yes, possibly, but also, I mean, again, he... he'd Sorry, the term he uh, <laughs> in this context is uh, because your grandfather was a great one for making other people's money work very hard, wasn't he? He was, yes, apparently so. Um, I mean, there's, there's stories of, um, yes, getting other people to invest in businesses that, that uh, he didn't put his money in. The, the, the basic concept was if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing well with somebody else's money. Yes, possibly, possibly, but I... <laughs> Um, I don't know. I mean, he, he, he was a very clever man on, in his own right. And I think if, if you can convince people to give you money to, to do things, then and, and if they're stupid enough to part with it, yeah. maybe. But yes, yeah. yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't like to get drawn into too much of an argument on that. <laughs> Just but, but, but what we have got here, um, again, uh, thanks to Tim's uh, research, is uh, another part, a really important element in this whole story, and uh, as we get on to Cobb as well, it's the dependence of these guys on small numbers of really key players. And we've already mentioned Railton, who was the glue who held this whole um, land speed record industry yes, together yeah, yeah, yeah. in the 30s. But Campbell had uh, these two guys, Leo um, Villa and Leach. Yes. Yeah. Um, who, who were the, his engineers, his factotums, the guys who really held it together. So 
that they were the, uh, the, the, the sort of supporting team that really kept Campbell's thing going, just as Ken Taylor was the man who kept Cobb's uh, whole uh, competition career uh, together. And these guys in the background were really, really important. Yeah, it's amazing. You wonder now what motivated such people, don't you? Because they, they were very selfless. I mean, Villa was still around when Donald was in Australia. Absolutely, oh, yeah, 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 still uh, yeah, was yeah, kept kept going with, in, with the tour. The, I mean, for yeah. for um, for Leo to have stuck with my grandfather uh, for all that time as well, you you wonder was was my grandfather that much of a, uh, a draconian boss? Um, I know there's some, some some stories of where perhaps other people would have perhaps walked away, but Leo had the metal to to stick at it. I think Leo really enjoyed the work, um, and my grandfather may not have paid him. Um, uh, as much as he, he should have done, perhaps, but he certainly gave him lots of gifts and bought him a house and a car and that sort of thing. Um, and there's one story where uh, apparently my grandfather, uh, well, when Leo was, was starting some of the racing cars, he would um, put the uh, advanced and retired lever at the set point and my grandfather was sitting in the car and my grandfather would tweak it a little bit um, and Leo would be starting the car up. And uh, on one occasion, um, he really badly strained his, his wrist and Leo lost his temper and Leo said, um, will you leave that lever alone? <laughs> um, and uh, uh, but he shouted it really quite yeah. aggressively at him and my grandfather shouted back, don't you talk to me in that tone of voice, Leo. Uh, Villa, he didn't call him yeah. Leo, he said Villa. Um, and never again did Leo talk to him in that tone of voice. But you can see that there's, there is a little bit of abrasion going on there yeah. all the time. Um, but Leo says he did enjoy being a riding mechanic. I suppose he was close to the centre, wasn't he? He was, yeah. yeah. Which, sorry to be a dimwit, but which one, which one is Leo Villa? He's the one on our, our left. Right. Yeah, so the, the right of the picture. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. yeah. And the, this car is, is, um, progresses beyond... That. That's 1936. So it's still got 30, single rear 30, wheels, 30, isn't it? Yes, it's 32, 33. Yeah. Give or take a year or two. Right. Yeah. That is that's, that's, it's a, so that's 33. Where's that now? Well, that's, that evolved. So right. that, that's, that's the, the, the first car that then evolved into the, the twin wheel monster that went on to Bonneville. Oh, okay. And that other car than, is now... Other than making guest appearances on uh, one of uh, uh, His Grace's arches at Goodwood, um, it lives at Daytona. Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah. In the Speedway Museum. Yeah. And it should be somewhere else, but that's another story. And the, that's Brooklyn's? Yep. Uh, every time he broke the record, almost, um, he came back here and did his victory uh, lap in front of his adoring public oh, uh, right. here at the track. Because this was the place, logical place to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the cars lived yeah. here. Um, he loved Brooklyn's. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he really thought this place was, was the place to be yeah. the whole time. I mean, he, he, he yeah. So this is, uh, this is still Napier-engined, and you can see the, the big problem that Railton was wrestling with, that the, the layout of the car was such that Campbell is sitting on top of the transmission. Yeah. So he's sitting very high. Uh, if you look at the other cars, uh, we're just going to come on to one in a moment, where they're designed for minimum frontal area, um, and this, uh, this is the last of the uh, brute force and, uh, and ignorance motor cars where the driver sits on top of everything. I see. Oh, very interesting. So yeah, it's, it's a shame that, the, yeah, that there weren't a series of different cars that we could all have lined up somewhere now to, to just look at and, and be in awe of. This is one of the great photographs, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. 
Well, that's, that's a young, young Donald. Yeah. Um, and then obviously grandfather. And at the back is my grandmother. Um, that's oh, yes, there she is. Yeah. And then there's my mum. And as I've, I've said many times, that's the only time she's ever changed a tar in her life, I think. <laughs> um, and Donald, I mean, the two of them were a couple of little scallywags. They really what is that? What, what is that vehicle? Well, they, they had... Um, a, is that a scale it, model? It's, it's, a, a, it's a Bluebird yeah, uh, pedal car. Well, it was a, I'm not sure if that one was electric or um, pedal. They had a pedal cars and electric cars, little Bugatti as well, wow. scaled down toys, um, which was just fantastic. Uh, but the, the two of them were, yeah, little little scallywags. There's one story that I've, I've got time quickly. That um, uh, well, there's the, uh, they. My grandfather used to like having a, uh, a bonfire, and they would um, follow him around. And he, if he found some leaves in, in, in the garden, he would just burn them, turn a little bonfire, and, and get it going, and, and then stamp it out and move on. Well. Uh, in the height of the summer, these two um, used to copy that. And one of them would be the person that set the fire, the other one would be the farmer to put the fire out. And they, they didn't realise that they set this little fire up next to a haystack. <laughs> <laughs> and they then argued over who was going to be the farmer to put it out. <laughs> and sure enough, the real fire brigade arrived because the whole um, haystack went up. 60 foot flames. Yeah, yeah, went up, oh, in, up, in, up in smoke. But there's, there's some wonderful stories about them getting into trouble. And, and then Malcolm would have to punish them. I mean, Malcolm had a very strict Victorian upbringing. Uh, and I think that carried through um, to the way he um, brought up his children as well to a degree. Um, I think Donald got um, a wallop, as my mum used to say, quite regularly. Um, but then Malcolm had a wallop quite um, often when he was a, a kid at school yeah. and, and with parents. It was just life, yeah. just life at the time. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think my grandfather ever hit my mum. She never ever said anything about being walloped by, by him. She only had good things to say about him. Um, whether that's rose-tinted spectacles or um, it's the reality of it, I, I just don't know. But I, yeah. I don't think he ever did. There's always there's some lovely photographs of, of him when he's been racing here and the children are, have always just run towards him at the end of a race. And there's yeah. a big smile on his face. He loved his kids. There's no yeah, doubt yeah. about it. Yeah. I, I know you found Donald quite frustrating, but I think anybody would have found any Donald <laughs> frustrating. Yeah. Um, there, was a, there, were, there are various tales about Donald struggling to, to sort of meet his father's expectations. Yes, I think so, yeah. Um, it, and, you know, that was seen as, you know, perhaps a motivator for what he did. I think so, going on to that later on maybe, but um, I think uh, Donald was, as a, as a kid, was very accident prone, very clumsy. Ah. Um, uh, I don't think he was particularly clever at school. So I think he was always a little bit of a, uh, or you could do better type, yeah. type thing. Yeah, if you just put yourself to it, you, you yeah. could do Try better. Try harder. Yeah, but um, he was always there keeping an eye on and watching. And Leo used to look after him. Leo used to try and protect him. This photograph, I think, is, is part of a famous set, isn't it? I've got a version yeah. of this and, uh, in my place at, in London. And, and uh, this is the car being displayed to the hacks, isn't it? There's a yeah, just outside here. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so that's now got the V12 Rolls-Royce engine in it, the R-Type engine. Yeah, so this is, this is the fi final, final version. Yeah. And, uh, of course, the, the shed uh, outside of which it is being displayed was Malcolm Campbell's shed, which was later taken over and at this stage belonged to Thompson and Taylor. Oh, I see. So uh, 
the, this is where it uh, this is where it all yeah, happened. More, more incest with the yeah. just outside okay. the bar. And he got they he he got to design a proper windscreen by the look of it there too as well. You know, about, yeah. But, but 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 no enclosed cockpit. No. You know, which would have just helped aerodynamics so much more. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure what the next picture is, but um, I mean, this car did go to to um, Bonneville and get the, the record at 300. Oh, there we are. Well, that's Daytona. He went to Daytona first of all um, and thought that Daytona would give him 300 miles an hour. But, I mean, he was always beating his own record at this stage um, because Henry Seagrave uh, had been killed on, in, um, in 1930 on, on Windermere. Henry Seagrave had broken the land speed record and I think he'd moved on to the water speed record and given up on the land. So Malcolm was, was only beating himself. The Americans had, had dropped away. Um, and he was just inching it up, inching it up. He wanted to be the first to do 200, but Seagrave beat him to that. Yeah. And he wanted to be the first to do 300. Um, and going to Daytona was a disappointment. Yeah. It's pretty, that, that picture of the, the car on uh, Daytona, um, the civic authorities in Daytona were desperate for people like Campbell to turn up and provide, be, be a tourist attraction. And so they they paid for quite a lot of uh, stuff, including taking some of the supporting structure out of the pier That's halfway right. along yes. the yeah, Daytona yeah. beach. There's a, there's a pier running out into, into the sea, and uh, that artificially limited the length of run that you could have on the beach. And, uh, I mean, sheer madness when you look at it now. Health and safety would have well, a fit. Yeah. But they, they took out <laughs> several of the supporting struts of the pier so that he'd have a 50-foot wide gap that he could drive through at 300 miles an hour. And, and that, was, that was still too narrow. I mean, yeah. can you imagine doing that? Well, it was 150-odd miles an hour, trying to get your stereo car on sand yeah, where yeah. you're not getting complete stereo yes, control yeah, anyway <laughs> to go through this gap. Oh, you know. oh dear. Yeah. Still 301.1? Yes. And again, that, that, I mean, my grandfather didn't have it easy. A lot of people think that he, he broke records just like that, but it took him some time, many weeks, waiting for the weather um, and conditions to be right. Uh, and this, this record uh, was hard fought and hard won as well. And then eventually when he gets to the other end, he's done uh, the, the 2A average. Tars have, have blown up on the way. Uh, he's been covered in, in hot oil uh, and uh, bits of bodywork have peeled off. It's, it's quite, a, quite a challenge oh, story. That, that he got yeah. to it. Uh, and then the, the timekeepers come over and say, congratulations, you've done 301 miles an hour. Isn't that fantastic? Great, well done. And he's been hoisted up and it's been celebrated. And then a few minutes later, they come back, the timekeepers, and say, ah, uh, we've made a bit of a mistake. It's 299.9 <laughs> miles an hour. And my grandfather said, well, can't you just round it up? <laughs> and they go, no, it's 299. And he went, oh, God's sake. So um, all of this sort of celebration was then a complete, um, you know, the opposite of being you know, celebrating. Um, and so they then start to work out, well, how can we make this car go faster? Because, I mean, he put his foot on the accelerator all the way. And Leo used to put a, a block of wood underneath the accelerator to literally stop him forcing it through the floorboards on pretty much any racing car that he wow. had because he was so forceful with it. And they said, well, the only thing we can possibly do is actually make an enclosed cockpit to try and help the streamlining. And as they're trying to sort of sketch this out, the timekeepers come back and say, 
Ah, uh, so Malcolm, uh, great news. Uh, we, our, our first calculations were correct. The second ones are incorrect, uh, and these are now the correct um, uh, figures. You've done a 301 miles an hour. Isn't that brilliant? And he, he swears at them and says, you actually spoilt my finest moment. Because he was yeah. so um, keen on being 300 and thought he'd done it. Yeah. So they have the partial celebration, and then the, the anticlimax. Amazing. And then it's back to 301. That's, this is a Vetriano painting, isn't it? It is. He used that as, yeah. uh, as his inspiration for Bluebird at Bonneville. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So where's Seagrave in this? Because he's already dead, is he? He's already yeah. dead, yes. We've, yeah, right. yeah. So we, we've jumped a little bit. I don't know if... yeah, and that, and that, that's the trouble, because all, all these stories are... Uh, Interlinked, We're going to yeah. have to bounce backwards and forwards a bit. Right. But, yeah, Seagrave, um, uh, sort of real boy's own hero, um, from not... not Desperately uh, well-off background, but Eton and all that sort of thing, and um, and uh, sort of blonde, blue-eyed, uh, you know, film star uh, looks, all that sort of thing, and uh, yeah. Um, not unlike yourself, Helen. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, perhaps not quite as good. But and he he got to drive some of the uh, some of the amazing cars. The, the top one, of course, is uh, is the slug, uh, the the twin-engined uh, uh, Sunbeam. Uh, body bodywork developed in the uh, in the Vickers wind tunnel here, um, as were quite a lot of them. Um, uh, but he yeah. was a works driver for some people. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he was a natural. Yeah, and uh, and uh, yeah, the, the a lot of Brooklands went into this car, even though it wasn't built here, um, because again the, uh, the the learning, the, I suppose, the, the, the streamlining side of it, the, yeah. the wind tunnel work down here. So that that car, um, yeah eventually got up to just over 230 miles an hour. Twin uh, Sunbeam aero engines, or they're, although they're, they're not actually... Uh, Sunbeam were quite mad. Uh, and they kept on building special things. You know, everybody else would take, yeah, we've got a great aero engine, let's use it in a car. So they, they did a special version of their aero engine. They sort of mucked bits and pieces around, and I think the engines in this car have only got three valves per cylinder, where the, the engine it was based on had That's four. That's right, I heard this. Yeah. And all, all this sort of nonsense. Yeah, yeah. And, then they, and then they called them Matabeles or whatever they were, so that people would think they were the, the aircraft engine. Anyway, um, it, it was, again, big crude monster, um, uh, but it, it did the job. Um, both engines driving the rear wheels, unlike the later cars where twin-engine cars, you spread the load between right. four wheels. Um, th that car obviously is now at Bewley, and uh, they are making progress on getting one of the engines working. That's so right. That we might yeah, yeah. This see car, this car, car below is is when they discovered the, this is the lack this, of frontal area. The, this is Golden Arrow. This is this is an absolute stunner. This is yes. Captain yeah. Irving's. Is this the one that's design. only ever done eleven miles? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. eleven miles. Yeah, yeah. literally. Um, Straight out of yeah. the box onto, onto, onto a Daytona. Did, yeah. did its did its two runs and never ran again. Um, uh, it, it, fabulous, designed to fit around an Napier Lion engine um, uh, uh, with the uh, radiators and, uh, and all the tankage on the side there, uh, filling in the gaps between the wheels, so very, very streamlined. Driver sitting really low, uh, just like a P3 Alpha, divided um, uh, final drive, uh, so the driver sat down between the uh, propeller shafts rather than on mm. top of the gearbox as, uh, as Campbell was doing. And absolutely stunning thing, because uh, at this stage, 
the Lion is not a desperately powerful engine. Um, uh, no, wasn't that one of the reasons the slug existed? Because yeah, uh, the Lion was running out of poke. Yeah, well, the, the, the Lion, even, you see, even in supercharged form, when Railton was using it later, <coughs> he, was, he was struggling along with about 1,400 horsepower per engine. Yeah, uh, uh, but, yeah, the, this, this is an absolutely stunning bit of kit. Yeah. Uh, it's worth a, worth a trip to Bewley just to, just to look at it. But, yeah, uh, yeah it, it really did the biz. But, you know, Seagrave got the record and then retired from, uh, for, uh, from all forms of, uh, of motor racing. How long uh, did it last, the record? Uh, that one, only, um, what? Um, a few weeks. A year. Oh, a year? Yeah, yes. It so. will take, well, he, he, yes, uh, 1929. Um, oh, gosh, I'll have to look. I heard an expert muttering in the corner there somewhere. It's behind you. <laughs> it's behind you. Yeah. Well, my grandfather's in 1931, yeah. so yeah, a year and a half. I don't know if Ray Keach had done it and had gone out before. Uh, no, that was earlier on. But, um, um, yeah, it, yeah, and then, of course, he, he, not for the first time, became a, a land speed record holder. He decided to go and get the water speed record instead and uh, with Miss England. And, uh, now, according to it, Tim's piece of paper here, it now there's says... A, there's another video. John Cobb. It says John yeah. Cobb. Ah. So where's Cobb in all this? Where is right. he? Is he learning? Is he? Yeah, yeah. All right. Let's do. Let's do the video, and then we'll then we'll do the backstory. be broken. John Cobb follows the example of Sir Malcolm Campbell, who last week smashed his own water speed record. Driving his Railton car, Red Lion, over Bonneville Salt Flats, Cobb has put up the land speed record to 368.85 miles an hour. He last beats George Easton's run by over 11 miles an hour. A great performance and still a British record. So, John Cobb, the very opposite of Malcolm Campbell, um, almost painfully shy, um, lots of evidence of you know, lacking in self-confidence, a big guy, always a big guy, even as a school kid, he was a, he was a big kid, um, lived just up the road in Isha, um, long line of uh, successful um, Fur brokers, uh, which is uh, the the company business, uh, where um, so self-financed. Yeah, again, yes, self-financed. Yeah, yeah. uh, looking looking for sponsorship, but not not in the way uh, that it's done today, where you know the the sponsors pay for your entire Formula One um, uh, operation. Um, they're looking for bits on the side you know, from the likes of Castrol and, uh, and other people. So, what were his footsteps? What were yeah, really really interesting. So, you know, where Campbell just assumed that he was going to be a great flyer, he was going to be a brilliant racing driver and all that sort of thing. Cobb came here uh, initially and just watched 
people racing. As a kid? Uh, yeah, as a young lad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then um, uh, plucked up the courage to offer himself up as a... Uh, as a he, he started off as a, as a riding mechanic to a guy called Ward uh, with, a, with a big um, uh, Fiat uh, Grand Prix car and eventually was rewarded with a drive in the Fiat um, and uh, did moderately well, came third in his first race, won his second race. Um, but didn't he um, uh, assign himself to Thompson and Taylor as well? Wasn't he, wasn't he a, a junior mechanic there as well? Uh, he said, yeah, there was a long, long relationship with... Yeah. The, yeah, with I think because they then saw something in him. Yeah. Um, and that was why they sort of invested their time in, in him as well. Yeah. As because he, he clearly had the wherewithal to, to get on and buy competitive motor cars, and he was being rewarded with races in, a, in other people's cars anyway. Um, but he, he eventually took the big step and bought the 10.5-litre Landspeed Record V12 Delage, um, uh, the car which, uh, if you go and sit in our 4D theatre car that uh, we used to, make, uh, to help make that film... And he raced, he raced that uh, for some time and, and then wanted something bigger and better than the Delage, which yeah, was not that fast a motor car. Um, and eventually he commissioned Thompson and Taylor to build a car that would do the jobs that he wanted. Uh, already he, he wanted to have the fastest <coughs> racing car uh, at Brooklands. He wanted to have a car that would race and win here and be the fastest possible but also the car that he commissioned would uh, be capable of breaking long distance records. Um, I don't think he ever saw himself as being a really fast competition driver. He was the sort of uh, the, the Jensen Button to a Lewis Hamilton um, uh, and but he capable of very disciplined uh, consistent driving uh, which is, is absolutely crucial to this long distance record breaking which is where... And this car is the Napier Railton? Yeah, yeah. And with the Napier Railton, he, um, uh, in, in a magic couple of years, um, 1935, 1936, he set the ultimate lap record here uh, at 143.44 miles an hour with the Railton, then took it, uh, took it to, um, uh, to Bonneville in 35, got the world 24-hour record up to 137 miles an hour, then went back to Bonneville in 36, and that car, uh, with a team of four drivers, uh, became the first to average 150 miles an hour for 24 hours, a record that he held for about two and a half days before Ab Jenkins got it back. Um, uh, uh, but, you know, the great thing was that... that did it, was, yeah. but, Cobb got to the stage very quickly where he realised that um, Mr. Ebblewhite had the measure of him as the handicapper here and he wasn't going to win races. Uh, with the, the car was you know, too, too competitive against the, the, the other specials and so forth of Brooklyn. So Mr. Ebblewhite decided the results of things, did he? Mr. Ebblewhite was, was a very insightful man um, <laughs> and he, he knew all the dodges that were going on, you know, the people who uh, you know, built their engines with a whole lot of compression plates under the block um, and uh, you know, every, every time you went out and raced you took out one of the compression plates so that the car would go progressively faster all the way through and he understood all that sort of thing and uh, yeah um, the, the Railton actually raced here surprisingly a few times, there was only eight or nine times that 
actually raced here, but uh, won over half its races. It was you know, spectacularly successful. It was, it, it was just better than the rest. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. More money was spent. Why was it better? Because, the, because the, it wasn't necessarily engine power, was it? No, I mean, it, uh, in, in absolute terms, it was probably the most powerful car, uh, other than maybe the Bimatori uh, Alfa Romeo that was racing here at 535 horsepower, but it weighed over two tonnes, because um, uh, the, the, the side rails are 10 inches deep, uh, they're absolutely massive, even though the engine is light, only weighs 900 pounds, um, you yeah, know, the, the car itself, and the, I mean, the, the back axle weighs as much as an Austin 7, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's stunning uh, thing. But the torque, the torque Output's pretty spectacular. Yeah, 1,300 foot pound at 1,800 RPM. Yeah, um, which uh, yeah, for people who get all excited about Bentley Bentaygas, yeah, having sort of 600 and something yeah. foot pound. You know, well, this is Cummins diesel uh, uh, territory stuff. Yeah. But so he uh, eventually, um, uh, in 1937, he retired that car because he knew that he couldn't win more races, and that's where he changed over to, uh, uh, to uh, tackling the land speed record. And he was the man who was brave enough and with deep enough pockets to go to Reed Railton and say, yeah, the car you want to build, I want it. And build the amazing teardrop streamliner. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The just, just before we get on to that, what, 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 do we know anything about the relationship between Cobb and, and um, uh, Campbell? Uh, they, they didn't see eye to eye, I think, is, is quite... Um, because they were different characters, mainly, or just possibly, rivals? Yeah, well, they were rivals, but, I mean, being the rivals, I don't think, um, was, was the sort of crux of it. I just think that they just took a, a, a somewhat of a dislike to each other. Yeah. And my, my grandfather um, w would be uh, doing a, a public meeting, doing a speech, and he would notice John Cobb in the front row, and John Cobb would sort of sit up and make himself quite big, and my grandfather would lose, lose the plot a bit, I a bit like I feel today. <laughs> um, but it, and it, so there was this uh, uncomfortableness, and there was a story apparently of uh, young Donalds at Brooklands one day taking the spark plugs from John Cobb and immersing them in oil. Now, I don't know if that was under instructions from his father, or it was just Donald being being Donald. Said, well, I found, I'll go and clean these for you in some oil, you know. <laughs> so I don't think John Cobb ever sort of saw eye to eye with, with the the the, uh, the the sort of level of animosity or whatever grew in time rather than uh, because uh, at the end of course Cobb uh, pretty much blamed uh, Campbell for the decision of the board of directors of the Brooklyn's track to sell yes, uh, the yeah, track no, to true, yeah. Vickers in 1946. Um, Campbell having first cornered the market in the shares of the Brooklyn's track company, so yes, a large true. percentage of the £330,000 that Vickers paid for the site went into the pockets of one Sir Malcolm Campbell. Well, what else could you do with the circuit then? Although Cobb resented it enormously, it, it, he sort of regarded it as his track. You know, it, yes. it was the only track he ever raced on. Um, he did record-breaking stuff yeah. elsewhere, but this was the only circuit he ever raced on. And he was a local boy, and the whole thing... I think he raced in... Um, uh, oh, Ireland. Ireland, because yeah, 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 that on, first on, race... Yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, the TT. TT, because apparently he, he, he had a... Uh, I think it's a great story. Um, he had a, uh, a crash hit a bank of soil and the car turned upside down with his um, riding mechanic and uh, they were both thrown clear and they were both all right. 
uh, and then they were seen scrabbling around on the tarmac uh, like a couple of madmen and people thought oh, they've lost the plot here what the hell's going on and it's purely because the, the riding mechanic had lost his false teeth and the impact <laughs> 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 trying to find his false teeth but, yes, but, but, but Cobb regarded that whole incident as, be, as being sort of um, uh, confirmation he was absolutely right not to like small motor cars it was a Riley Brooklands that, uh, that yes. fell over yeah. he didn't like small motor cars um, he probably didn't fit them too well yeah, no, no, he didn't. He was, he, was, he, was a, he was a big man, and uh, uh, when he was flying, uh, another of the parallels uh, between uh, Cobb and Campbell was that they both ended up as ferry pilots um, for His Majesty's Armed Forces. Campbell in the First World War delivering aircraft to France, and uh, Cobb uh, in the Second World War, um, uh, even though by then he was uh, approaching 50, he was, uh, he, he was in the 88 uh, del delivering aircraft to what, France. What were the d difference in age? About 15 years. Okay. Uh, Cobb, Cobb was the younger by about, yeah. uh, he was 1899, yeah, yeah, and your grandfather was yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, Cobb was too young for the First World War and <coughs> too, too old for the, the Second. second yeah. uh, but but he, he acted as a... He did stuff, uh, yeah. And, and he was regarded, uh, unlike, unlike Campbell, he was regarded as a model flyer uh, uh, and, uh, and a marvellous... Well, my grandfather couldn't have been too bad. I mean, he, he did write, <laughs> write a book, um, which was a... a, a, a self-published book on how to fly planes yeah. and was made a, an MBE. Yeah. But, but again, the, things, the, yes. the, 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 the difference was that Campbell lacked the self-confidence. He was convinced he wasn't going to be a good enough pilot. And uh, they, they actually... The, he, he was in the RAF VR as a, uh, uh, flying a desk and, uh, and it took others to persuade him and that, they actually flew him around in aeroplanes persuading him that he could do this oh, right. and that actually be a frontline pilot and he ended up being uh, the, the uh, commanding officer at White Waltham um, described him as the best possible officer and an excellent influence on the rest of the pool um, yeah, and never bent an aeroplane. Um, but, uh, yeah, so a very, very different uh, sort of character. Mm. Um, Tell us about this car. Yeah, uh, th this... This this, well, is the, this is Railton's finest hour. Th th this is yes. definitely Railton's finest hour. Um, everybody else was going to the... Uh, following the Blunderbuss uh, school of thought. Uh, the Campbell car at this stage has got a Rolls-Royce R, uh, the, the, the Schneider, saw, tr yeah. Schneider Trophy um, uh, engine, so two and a half thousand horsepower, whatever, and weighs... About seven, seven tons. tons. Yeah. Um, wow. uh, Easton had been uh, breaking records with Thunderbolt, which was an eight-wheel eight monster yeah. with two of these big Rolls-Royce engines in it, yep. and weighed even more. And Railton designed this thing, and it weighs three tons. Um, and it's got two of these ultralight Napier Lion engines, second-hand. They came out of Betty Carstairs racing speedboat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so they're already old engines. They're ten-year-old engines when they went into this car. And were but they were they line were they in it had, the, the car the car had a backbone chassis just uh, just like a Lotus Elan, yep. but bent. S shape. Uh, bent into an S shape, yep. and then the engines were hung off the side, the side. sort yeah. of uh, pannier style. How interesting. Um, and the rear engine drove the front wheels and the front engine drove the rear wheels. No connection between the two other than the roadway, um, uh, but there was a single shift lever for the three-speed uh, gearboxes, but, the, but they were synchronized by the fact the wheels were running <coughs> on the road. Wow. Um, and it had all sorts of really clever 
uh, bits of engineering in it. I, I, Railton really did think this thing through. Um, he made it ultralight. Um, he, he went away from the prevailing thought that you had to have a great big tail fin to keep the thing uh, stable and pointing in a straight line. So, so he got rid of, got rid of the, the tail fin, minimal frontal area, the body you could just pick up and, and to do anything on the car you had to take the body off and it would just be picked up by a group of people and just walked away with it. Oh. Uh, this is in, this is in almost definitive you. form. The, when it first came out it actually had an open cockpit and they ran it a couple of times to the open cockpit at slow speeds and said, forget that, yeah. uh, put this little uh, conning tower on instead. And at this stage, it doesn't have the fairings over the, uh, uh, over the wheels, uh, which it uh, needed for streamlining. And uh, again, it was such a, a brutally efficient design. The only space for Cobb was in front of the front axle. Yeah, um, as we saw in that unclothed picture. And that, that was sort of Railton really thinking it through. Everybody else you know, sat at the back of their car, yeah, but uh, the only place that Railton could see for him was at the front. So that's who put him. Uh, and the, the big thing here was that uh, you, you had the engine power divided between all four wheels uh, because the limiting factor all the way through on this, Don was talking earlier about his grandfather having tyres shredding and so forth even at 300 miles an hour. Um, you know, Dunlop were doing their best to build tyres that were fast enough for the cars and what you had to do was cut, cut the amount of power and the amount of weight that was being fed through each wheel. So the 37 Bluebird had dual rear wheels to, to spread the load out the load, yeah. um, and this thing 35 35 car sorry yeah um, uh, um, this is 37 um, and uh, so uh, ultra streamlined teardrop shape uh, everything um, here as the, as the aerodynamic theorists uh, would have it and uh, this this combination of very lightweight uh, no uh, no um, ballast in this, whereas Bluebird had, had, lead. Uh, had lead in the back yeah. to, to aid, the, aid the traction. The traction yeah. um, and there you can see, how, tight, you can see how tightly packaged it is. Yeah. There's no radiators, uh, just relies on a huge uh, tank of ice and, and water. So one of, the, one of the big challenges in the hour change around, uh, at the end of the first run you not only had to change the wheels and tyres, and these things weigh two or three hundred weight each. These are not light no. uh, things to, uh, to take off. But they also had to drain the, uh, uh, the water and ice tanks. And, uh, uh, but, By but, removing the body. Yeah, okay. but very cleverly. See, Railton was really thinking all the way through. And he had all this water, ice, uh, ice and water in there keeping the engines cool, which is surplus at the end of the run because you want to put fresh ice in it. So he used that water to cool the brakes on a total loss system. Wow. Um, so there's no, no braking parachutes or anything like that. They, they had an air brake which they discarded because they found uh, the combination of, of drag and uh, engine compression was enough to slow the vehicle down anyway, down to a couple hundred miles an hour when you could start using the brakes. Right, I have a question actually, yeah. which a gentleman over there has asked. I'm going to ask you, why did the front engine drive the rear wheels and the rear engine drive the front wheels on that car? What was the thinking behind that? Um, probably, probably just the geometry of, uh, of arranging um, uh, the, the drive um, while the, the front has got independent suspension and so forth. No, it's just, it's just it's a, a, a propeller shaft, uh, but to fit in, you know, because you, you've got the engine 
and the three-speed gearbox and a freewheeling device yes, and then right. and, and yep. then a secondary freewheeling <laughs> device um, really really clever you had a freewheel to use instead of a, so you didn't have to worry about clutches but then the freewheel would let the engines die between gear changes so you had an anti-freewheeling device oh, uh, <laughs> if the engine revs dropped too far yeah, uh, yeah. and all that sort of thing so you had to package all that in and it made a lot of sense to to do it that way around okay. Yeah. So what, what did this car achieve? Okay, in the end, uh, it, it got the land speed record before the war before as, the, uh, as the Railton Special, sponsored by Gilmore, had the Red at, Lion on at it. At which venue? At Bonneville. Bonneville. Right. Yep. Yep. Um, and you may have noticed, just a, just a little aside, you may have noticed in some of that stuff in the video that the car was painted black. Uh, they had to paint it black uh, when they were out there because the timing beams didn't work on the, on, the, yeah. on, the, oh, on, the, on the polished uh, alloy wow. bodywork. They had the same problem with Thunderbolt, and uh, so they had to paint the car black. Um, but yeah, and then uh, the car was uh, that was literally on the outbreak of war. Um, and, uh, and that was 360. Three, what was the speed? 370. 370. Yeah, in that area. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. And it eventually did... And, and then uh, they brought it back, um, and post-war, Cobb decided you know, that he didn't have his b beloved Brooklyns to race on, so he was going to go out and get the 400 miles an hour, which right. he and Railton were convinced uh, was doable. Dunlop had proven that the tyres... Uh, they tested them to 480 miles an hour, I think, so uh, everybody was sure the whole thing could do. They went out, they had a lot of problems uh, with the post-war runs, uh, including uh, the almost unheard of thing of a Napier Lion engine failure when one of the camshafts on one of the engines seized. But eventually, um, he did the ultimate. Um, his two-way average was 394 miles an hour, but crucially, Cobb became the first person ever to travel on land at 400 miles an hour. So Campbell was the first to 300, Cobb was the first to 400. And that record uh, stood <coughs> until Donald Campbell broke it, the official wheel-driven land. Oh, the 403. Record. Uh, yeah. in, yeah. 19, in 1964. Yeah. Lake Air. But I think yeah. it wasn't Cobb's best average, 403 as well? His first run, uh, his fastest run was 403. Was 400, yeah. And yeah. then Donald did 403 as, a, average. as an average over so two. Yeah. What happened to this What This car is... It's on display, on display. Uh, in, in Coventry. Uh, uh, Birmingham, uh, Birmingham. The old Museum of oh, Science and Industry, okay. now Think Tank, I think it's called. It's called Think okay. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. uh, it sits there with its body raised up off, so you can actually see this That's wondrous right. uh, mechanical uh, packaging. And what, what happened to Malcolm Campbell's career? Was it, was it over when the war came? Or? No, uh, he, he, uh, he was happy that uh, he'd broken the 300 barrier. And uh, people thought that he would retire from record-breaking, go into politics or um, TV stuff or film stuff, um, you know, being the presenter. Yeah. But uh, he did retire from land speed record-breaking and, and went into water speed record-breaking. Of course, yeah. Which was even more dangerous than, than the land. Um, and uh, he was happy that the, his car, the Bluebird, had, had, he couldn't get any more out of it, and that would mean a complete completely new car and he just didn't have the funds to, to build a new car and his good friend George Easton had uh, beaten the record two years later so he was happy that it was held by, by a Brit and it, but more importantly a friend 
George Easton. I'm not sure what his reaction was when John Cobb beat it, but um, there we are. It's probably another story. Um, and then he went on to break the water speed record four times. Right. And became the second person, uh, like Seagrave, to hold the land and water speed records in the, in the same year. And we're now okay. getting into part two. Okay, well, I, th <laughs> yeah. I think that's... I mean, the George uh, Easton, <laughs> George Easton is just another, another fascinating Brooklyn. Yeah. Let's do this again. We came to an abrupt end, and I think yeah. it would be marvellous to do it again. Ladies and gentlemen, thank these three gentlemen for a wonderful evening. I've torn, I've torn the script up now, so... I'm sure there are a couple of questions. If we can take them, um, hands up. Um, anyone? Gareth, I can always count on you for a question. Someone asked Don what he's doing now, by the way. Okay. Um, obviously, this week we've seen uh, the Bloodhound project uh, grind to a halt. Um, that's obviously massively more complicated, perhaps, than some of the land speed records we've been talking about. Do you think it's impossible to generate the funds to do record-breaking these days? Um, it's, it's always been impossible, I think, <laughs> is, is the answer to that, really. Um, and as time has got on, it's becoming more and more impossible. But there are people like Richard Noble who will continue to try and raise money to, to achieve these records. And without it, um, we, we need that spirit of adventure. Um, and we need people like Richard pushing, pushing the boundaries. And we need people like Andy Green to drive these cars. I really hope that um, someone does come out and, and rescues Bloodhound. And, and as we said at the beginning, £25 million is a significant amount of money. But to some of the big corporates out there, it's nothing. So um, it is impossible. But if anyone can do it, it'll be Richard. I went to Bristol the day after the announcement to interview the administrator, there's, there's a story in Autocar, on the Autocar website. Um, and the guy that uh, is now the administrator, who's in charge of running the factory and all the rest of it, implied to me that he would only have taken the job if he had thought that there was some chance of a good outcome. So he's not there just to sell the uh, assets. He said there are very few assets, by the way. A lot of the, the, uh, the bits and pieces are owned by benefactors or people that are sponsors in kind. So there's nothing really to sell. The, the, the thing will be worth something if it succeeds, and their, their aim is to help it succeed. He also makes the point that 25 million quid is a lot less than it takes to, to operate the, the slowest car on a Formula One grid. Absolutely. Another question, ladies and gentlemen. And by the way, Don is so modest, he's got some books for sale here. Oh, did I mention that? You didn't mention No, I didn't. It's a good book, I read it. Yes. Oh, Harry, there we go. Where are all these cars? They seem to be sort of dispersed in different museums, some in Daytona, some in Birmingham. Is there a definitive list where all these record-breaking cars are scattered around the world? I think it might be in the back of this book. Yay! <laughs> a few. I mean, it lists a few, but they are scattered around the world. But I mean, fun, funda fundamentally, um, uh, Golden Arrow, the 350 horsepower Sunbeam, uh, the Slug, the, the Slug, and the Donald Campbell's Bluebird are all at Bewley. Um, the twin-engine Railton is in Think Tank at Birmingham. 
Um, Thunderbolt yeah. was destroyed. Thunderbolt was burnt out. Um, he'd one say in a wool store in New Zealand during the war. Um, Richard Noble's two cars are in Coventry. Yeah, Coventry yeah. Museum. Yep. Um, they are about. Yeah, yeah. My grandfather's car. The, the final. Um, version of it is in Daytona. If you Google them, they'll bob up. They are around. Yeah. But you need to buy the book, really. You need yeah. to buy it. Seven ninety nine. <laughs> okay. I'll even sign it. Anyway. Yeah. Twenty five quid signed. No, we well, haven't. No, we haven't talked about <laughs> the book. Uh, another question. We'll make this the last one because I know you're all keen to win the Tinner WD forty. So, <laughs> uh, any other questions? I know we've cut this off briefly, but I'm sure you three gentlemen will come back and revisit this. I think you're not going to even have the option, are you? Uh, and another, one more question, maybe. Gluttons for punishment. One more question. No, my question is, on what are you up to now, land speed record-wise? Um, well, uh, we can probably go on to part two to, to explain that. Um, there, there is another project. I mean, I, I do currently hold the, the steam car record, um, which was funded by uh, Charles Burnett who uh, allowed me to drive his car, and that is just a, such a fabulous project and story. It took 10 years um, to do from conception to world record. Where did you do it? Um, Edwards Air Force Base oh, in, right. in okay. California. Which it was just 10 weeks of, of uh, a heat wave in a desert, if you can imagine that, trying to get a steam car to work that didn't want to work. Um, and it's just a, it's a fabulous project. But Charles uh, was uh, investing into a new project to do 200 miles an hour, a new steam car with lots of more um, hydrogen-based technology, which is going to have a, a, a bearing for the future, not just for, for uh, range extenders for cars, but also to generate electricity. Uh, and then Charles was killed in a helicopter crash uh -huh. in uh, the beginning of the year. So we're, we're, we're still trying to get that project to... Um, have its own life, which luckily it does, and hopefully get a steam car to do 200 miles an hour in a year or two. At Edwards? Um, possibly Edwards, possibly Bonneville. Um, it will have a gearbox this time, so we won't need quite such a big run-up. Fantastic. And what about the lawnmower? Lawnmower, <laughs> well, um, yes, that, uh, that, that was the cut, cutting edge of technology. <laughs> that is part two. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we've Round of applause for Steve, Don and Alan. Well done, boys. Now, ladies and gentlemen, as my, uh, as my normal wingman and light...